Could you take a photo of us? I would oh yeah, I would, I would also like that as a matter of fact. Yeah, it would be really, really nice. I will post it on my social media. Yeah, let me make sure that my 7-Eleven costume is <laughs> prominently displayed. <laughs> Hey Slavic Connection listeners, it's Misha and I'm here with Sergio. Hey Misha, good to be here. We had a great conversation today with uh, Bartok Gaios. Bartek is a historian of Russia in the Soviet Union. He's a research fellow at the Julius Mirashevsky Center for Dialogue. And we've had a great conversation on politics of memory in early USSR and how memory is instrumentalized and weaponized by Russia today to advance its interests in what it calls the near broad. We hope you enjoy. Welcome. Hello. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, sort of academic, personal background? What brings you to ACES this year? Um, uh, so, I defended my PhD two years ago. It was about uh, the politics of memory of the Bolshevik regime, 1917-1920. So, the very early period, uh, which has a lot of mysteries and uh, which I think does not really fit into uh, the established stereotype. What, uh, what, what events and who was the most... Uh, Cherishable, what, what was the most uh, cherished person uh, and, and what persons they wanted to commemorate at that time? Because uh, uh, as I saw, uh, one of the things that I, th- I think uh, is somehow related to the current situation with Ukraine and which shows the difference between Putin and Lenin, well, we know that Putin is uh, fiercely criticizing Lenin, is that actually the recognition of Ukrainian nation as, as something separate from the Russian one happened through the language of politics of memory. What I'm saying is that, I mean, the, the first monument in Russia, in Moscow, was erected by the Bolsheviks in 1918, to Taras It was a, on, a, on a very high political level. The, the, the whole event was on very high political level. Lev Kamenev, for instance, attended it. And the second thing is what, what was very unexpected for me was that uh, Joseph Stalin, at the time the, commiss- the commissar on nationalities, issued a decree in which he uh, said that all the subjects held in Hermitage Museum, which, has, which have uh, some Ukrainian associations or origins, should be given back to the Ukrainian nation. I mean, there are some, you know, there is some political game in it, but still there is a, a significant change if you compare it with the previous period in which the Tsarist regime did not recognize Ukrainian nation as such, of course. And uh, when in 1914, there was the one, I think it was 100th anniversary of the birthday of Taras Shevchenko. I mean, people who wanted to, com- to commemorate him were taken by Ohrana and put into jail, right, uh, all the protesters. And then four years later, on the first anniversary of the October Revolution, you have Taras Shevchenko Monument erected in Moscow. So that's what I think, I, that's one, one of the things that I'm discussing in it. And the second point I'm making in my book, I hope it will be published next year in Polish, and I, I will, I'll, then I'll make it into English, I hope, uh, is that when, when we are today thinking about the politics of memory, we're mostly thinking about great heroes, someone who uh, made uh, great military deeds, uh, and and has in his in his biography some great victories, some great military victories. He's a male. It's also very important, mostly mostly male. But what Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks tried to do at that time, I think, was also a significant change in terms of how they were thinking about the politics of memory, because they they wanted to push away all the military, 
issues, all the all, all military re- related persons. And on their place, they wanted to commemorate philosophers, people from the cultural sphere. I was really shocked when I learned that they wanted to commemorate uh, Friedrich Chopin, a oh. Polish composer. I mean, they, they even published a list of persons who they wanted to commemorate. And, and, and it, it is a sort of like a genealogical tree in which they presented their origin. So their origin started in, 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 in ancient history, actually, guys. So it was Tiberius Gracchus. It was Spartacus, right? And it was very interesting to learn for me uh, that there was this short, very short period in which they attempted to somehow change also the way wider public thinks about history, the way also for what reasons we are using history here, here and right now. Because, I mean, the whole context in 1917 is that you have revolution of nationalities, as Roman Sporluk has written in one of his articles mm-hmm. in, in, this, in this whole region. I mean, you have nations emerging all of a sudden, to the surprise of many. And uh, I mean, when you have nations emerging, I mean, nations need heroes from the past, of course, and most of them are celebrating military heroes. But uh, and, and, and here the Bolsheviks are stepping in and they are telling some, 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 some different, different story. And I think, I think it's somehow related that they're really intellectuals. It stems from their culture of uh, intellectual circles, Kruzhoks, and how they discussed it. Also from their work as teachers, uh, sort of teachers, I'm putting it in, in, in quotation marks, because if you look at some biographies of, I don't know, Lunacharsky or uh, Vladimir Maximovich Fritsche, who is one of the main heroes in my book, it, it, somehow I'm, I'm trying to put more light on him because... It is being built. I mean, in the literature, you would read that there, there was something like plan of monumental propaganda or monumental propaganda plan, whatever. But uh, this very term was coined only during the Stalinist era. No one used it in 1917 and 1918 or 1919. I mean, the Stalin, the Stalin and, and the whole Stalinist elite used it so as to legitimate their goals in 1940s. And to show, like, I mean, the continuity of thinking between him and Lenin, right, right? Right, right? But still, it is being still used to describe those issues. But the second thing which is being discussed in the, in, in the context of the monumental propaganda plan is that the Bolsheviks were li- really influenced by Tommaso Campanella, who was the Italian philosopher from uh, Renaissance period. And he wrote one of the first utopia novels, like uh, Thomas More, right, 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 the, 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 this, this, this way of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the City of Sun, uh, I think it's the, 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 the English translation. Right. And actually, everything, like the monumental propaganda plan, the, 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 the inspiration of Campanella was attributed to Lenin. Actually, what I'm telling in my book, it's, it's, it's not like this. It's Fritsche who came up with this idea, who really promoted Campanella at the time as a sort of inspiration, because Campanella basically uh, described the ideal city uh, and how it should look like and uh, how it should operate and what were the functions of the city for the whole society. And it was like a sort of, to put it in a nutshell, mm-hmm. I would say that instead of uh, banners and advertisements, as we can see right now here in, in, in Philadelphia, right. there would be uh, some educational terms being uh, described like Pythagoras equation, what is alphabet, some, some terms from math, some terms from chemistry, and so on and so forth, because he believed that, I mean, for science, people can progress. And Bolsheviks took this idea, and they wanted to introduce it in, in, in Moscow and in other Soviet cities at the time, and to promote for this uh, socialist Marxist thinking. So basically what they did, they 
took some quotations from uh, classics of, uh, of Marxism or, or previous thinkers and tried to display them in, 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 in the cities or in, on, on, the, on the monuments. So basically, if you take a look at some photos from this period of time, you basically have a monument and then you have a, like a sheet around this monument and something is written on it. So basically, there is a quote from this, from this guy who is commemorated. Basically, it worked like that. And it's some, to some extent, it shows that, well, yeah, they, they, they were somehow influenced by this Campanella thinking, but someone had to promote it. And it wasn't Lenin, as I'm, as I'm claiming in my book. It was, it was Vladimir Maximovich Fritsch. That's you know genuinely very very interesting. So yeah, I mean I'm I'm super interested in this what I'm understanding this kind of transition from this like using political memory for like these kinds of military valorizations to this intellectual sphere, right? I mean I I, I was just reading I think in the in the late David Graeber, right? Like how how many how many young Frenchmen had to die for Napoleon's immortality, right? Um, so that that's a really interesting issue. I was. I was wondering if you could quickly, I, like, I'm kind of discerning some, like, sort of stages and how this political memory is being used, mm-hmm. right? So there seems to be, I don't know, I guess a pre, uh, pre-Bolshevik revolution, like late Tsarist sort of mm-hmm. understanding of this. And then it seems like the early Bolsheviks had a, a particular approach and then Stalin, I don't know, went in a different direction. I'd be interested in just kind of this, like, sort of stage progression, I uh-huh. guess, if, if that's even the correct way of understanding this. Right now, I think in, when we analyze the current situation and the current usage of history by the Kremlin mm-hmm. in the in context of the war against Ukraine, I mean, people are trying to see some continuities between all those periods that you, sure. des- that you describe. Sure. I mean, the Tsarist regime, the Bolshevik, and so on and so forth. So I, I think the, the most significant change, like a revolutionary change that Putin is now trying to convince all of us, all of us is that he wants to go back to the Tsarist regime in terms of that there is no Ukrainian nation and there is no his, no 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 history of Ukraine as such. So therefore, he is still talking about historical Russia, and this this very notion is very frequently in his speeches. Historical so, Russia. Historical Russia. Uh-huh. Historical Russia. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it, it's to uh, it's, a certain extent is very synonymous to Ruski Mir, right. so the Russian right. world, but it's not the same in a way because. I'm right finishing the, my second book, which is aimed at the wider audience. It's about the, the current Russian politics of memory. And, and, and there is, there, there are three points basically that I make in this book. So the first one is that I treat the current Russian regime as revolutionary, but in, not in a way that we associate the word revolutionary with the Bolsheviks or with the great French revolution. Sure. So there is some, you know, uh, vision of the future to which we strive for. Uh, it's other way around. So, uh, so Putin is not accepting the current situation and therefore he wants to go back. And here fits history very well because he depicts the demanded, uh, reality with uh, picking up some issues from the past. And therefore he, he would like to go back to, to the period in which uh, great powers had a lot of to say about middle and small, uh, states. When there was no Ukrainian nation as such, as um, the, the Tsarist uh, authorities were claiming in, in the 19th century. So that's the, that's the first thing. And oh, and actually, I'm also for this book, I'm also interviewing diplomats. I had a chance to speak to the Russian diplomats. And I'm asking them a very simple question. Whether do they recall any situation in which the, the Russian diplomats were using historical arguments? 
so as to advance their political agenda, sure. right? So uh, I don't want to spill the beans, but no, I can, no, 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 but no, no, I can no. tell you, but I can tell you one, one because the book is not published yet. But I, I can tell you one or many, or maybe two anecdotes. So the first one uh, was uh, I spoke to Adam Daniel Rothfeld, who was the foreign minister of uh, who was the minister of foreign affairs of Poland in early two thousands. But then he was one, uh, he was the co-chairman of the Polish Russian Commission on uh, difficult issues. It was called. Difficult issues is a synonym to history. <laughs> Difficult issues is a synonym to history, right? So I'm writing that one down. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, he attended. He had a chance to be on a breakfast when Sergei Lavrov visited Poland in 2007 or eight. Sergei Lavrov, uh, foreign minister, right? The foreign minister yeah. of of Russia. And there was Radosov Sikorsky on, on, on the Polish side. He was the, the, the current Minister of Foreign Affairs at the time. And Lavrov, and during this breakfast, uh, raised up the issue of uh, organizing. I mean, he, he suggested, he implied that it would be very good for Europe to organize something like the Congress of Vienna but in, in the 21st century, right? So basically, the, he doesn't want to like make the historical reconstruction, uh, of course. He wants to uh, convey a message that it would be great to go back to the idea of the great powers organizing the international stage and international affairs according to their principles and values, or perhaps drawing also some lines between uh, the sphere of influences. And I think I would say that he, I don't think he did think it through fully because, I mean, the Congress of Vienna is not really well associated in Poland. You can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, because basically, after, after, the, <laughs> after the Congress of Vienna, 81% of, 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 of the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth uh, territory went to Russia. So 81%. I think it also explains why there were Polish uprisings against Russia uh, during the 19th century, mostly, yeah. mostly against Russia. But that's, that's one thing. And the second thing uh, is also, I think, quite funny because you can also very frequently encounter a situation in which the Russian diplomats, Putin, including and, and, and Medvedev and so on and so forth, claiming that Russia was cheated when uh, the Soviet Union were collapsing and when they were discussing the re- reunification of Germany because there was a promise not to enlarge NATO to the West. So actually, there is a great book by Mary Sarotti. I won't summarize it right now, but basically, yeah, there, there, there was such, you will find such words during the negotiations between the Americans and the Soviets, but the context is completely different. I mean, they were only used specifically for, for the context of the reunification of Germany. No one, I mean, when, when, they were, when James Baker, the, 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 the state secretary, was using these words, he, it, it, was, it was the time when the uh, Warsaw Pact existed and no one even thought about enlarging nato to the to the east what's that famous line of like not one inch something not like, one inch like that. yes yeah, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the famous line not not one inch but i mean had the west promised such thing they would have included it in the uh reunification of germany treaty i mean two plus four i think they would have changed also the, the nato pact the article 10 uh, which refers to the enlargement, but they didn't do it for the basic reason there was no such promise. But anyway, I interviewed one of the Polish diplomats also, uh, Robert Pschel, uh, who used to be uh, the chief of the NATO office in Moscow, 2010, 2015, something like this. But before, before also he, he worked uh, in, in, in NATO and, and, and also 
for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Poland. And he told me that before Russia invaded Georgia on one of the diplomatic summits, he was approached by the Russian diplomats. And they basically asked him if, if, if he knows anything about documents, which would confirm that there was such a promise. And he said sincerely that, guys, you can go to the NATO archives. You can, you can dig wherever you want. You won't find it because there is nothing like this. And then after, I, I don't know, one or two years after, uh, he met uh, the same guys and they, they said to him that, well, actually, we haven't found anything. I mean, and, and Stella said that, well, guys, I told you that there is nothing like this. And, and we even, and they, and they are saying that we even send it to Moscow, that there is no such a thing. But actually, our president is saying that it is, that there was a promise. So we have to follow it. So that's the, that's the basic, basic idea of, 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 of my book and what, I, what I'm trying to do. And the third thing, I think in terms of politics of memory, there is also this temptation when every politician, regardless of if, if it's Russian, Polish, American, whatever, mm-hmm. when a politician refers to the past, you have instantly in the, in, on social media or, 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 or media outlets comments regarding historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. I think it's good. It's okay. But I, I don't think it's a priority because when, when a politician refers to the past, he's not doing it so as to summarize the current state of history, historiography and to, uh, I mean, deliver a paper like, it's to convey a political message. Right. It's to convey uh, a, a, some of the vision of the future, convey the direction of, the, of his, his policy. And therefore, by focusing on this uh, and analyzing it from this point of view, I think it's much more fruitful. And it's much more telling, and that's what I'm trying to do in, in, in my book. Very, very cool. Um, I, I had just one thing before I turn over to some questions from Misha as well. I'm really interested in this idea that that Putin's sort of trying to turn back the clock to, I guess, like a sort of pre-Great War uh, period where the, you know, great powers manage the affairs of everyone effectively. I think that's interesting because I think, you know, it seems to me like some people would say that that is still pretty much the case today, that the great powers manage the affairs of the medium and the smaller ones. It's just that there are far fewer great powers and, and it's become a little more, I don't know, imbalanced, right? Like the balance of power certainly doesn't exist mm-hmm. anymore, right? So I, I, I don't know. I think that, that, that's a curious thing, right? I, I, I would counter that yeah. uh, in, in a way that if you take a look at how Russia was treating and seeing the whole uh, Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. all the countries, starting from Finland, finishing on, I mean, Bulgaria, which uh, has very close ties because of history, um, because of culture with, with, with Russia, as irrelevant. I mean, it's, it's very speculative why... Basic. Why, why precisely on 24th of February 2022, Putin decided to invade Ukraine? Sure. But for, for, for I think that, that one reason was that he saw uh, the re- retreat of, uh, of the U.S. from Afghanistan as, as a total failure. And he, he interpreted it as an indication of, 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 of the U.S. As, as a declining power. The second thing, I think that the policy of Germany after the annexation of Crimea and first and foremost pursuing the Nord Stream 2 was very convincing to the Kremlin that they won't do anything if Russia invades Ukraine. I mean, it, it worked like a, an encouragement uh, for Berlin because they basically believed that actually 
economical interest of Germany is higher above than the security of the whole region, including Ukraine. So basically what Germany did, uh, I mean, that was the interpretation of right. the Kremlin, and, and that's my speculation, of course, uh, is that I think that the Kremlin thought that Germany would be very willing to push the whole region under the train um, because of its economical, economical interest. And the behavior of, of, of all those countries after 24th of February and the way they mo- try, were trying to mobilize the whole world in favor of Ukraine, in favor of supporting Ukraine, in favor of uh, sending the weapons, in favor of arguing for Ukraine as becoming the member of the European Union, in favor of Ukraine becoming the member of NATO, proved that it's not only great powers that make a difference, but also the smaller powers. And, and the third thing I can tell you, it's, it's also, I did, a, I did a, an interview with Dan Fried, uh, the American diplomat who was the special envoy for, uh, for, for sanctions in the Obama administration. But he right now works, I think, at the Atlantic Council as a senior research fellow. He, he, he told me, he told me one thing that he was very surprised when the G7 frees all the Russian assets in, in, in Western banks, because it was unimaginable for him to do such a thing. But well, I asked him, why do you think so? It happened. I mean, it's, it's also very, when you go to the pre-war period, so the Armageddon option, if Russia invades Ukraine, mm-hmm. was to cut off the Russians from SWIFT. Right. There was no freezing of the assets. So, I mean, the Armageddon option was, you know, it was SWIFT, mm-hmm. but no one even could have imagined that the Western, uh, Western countries would be very eager and able to freeze the Russian assets in, in, in Western banks. So, basically, he said that actually history had... Had something to do with it because when the Western leaders of G7 saw images from Ukraine, it resembled them the Second World War. Sure. I mean, they were, hor- they were they were horrible. I mean, they, they were horrified by the scale of the invasion, uh, by the brutality of Russians, and they had to do something. I mean, it w- it was in a way very emotional, I guess. Yeah. yeah, you have to do something, and you have to be very smart because when G7 met, I think it was on Friday, and so you have to do and uh, and freeze all those assets during the weekend. So as, so as the Russians won't be able to withdraw the money. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they did it in a very rapid way because I think war started on Thursday and I think on Friday G7 met and then they introduced the, the, the whole thing. So you, you see the puzzle is still hovering above all those issues. And as I work at the, at the Miroshevsky Center, so you, uh, Miroshevsky was, I, I think, the most important political writer of Poland in the 20th century. And one of the things he wrote is that Every discussion about politics is a discussion in 70 or 80 percent about history. And I think he was right. (laughs) Bartok, and I wanted to ask you, so why did Putin kind of transition from being this very friendly uh, to the West, to the United States president in early 2000s, the first two years maybe, and then uh, he started looking at those promises uh, about not one inch, about NATO expansion, things that he wouldn't mention before regarding the West, but also regarding Ukraine, about its statehood. He would say things like that, I appreciate Ukrainian culture and Ukraine is our uh, neighborly state. You know, we don't encroach on their sovereignty in any way. Obviously, it was political rhetoric too, but but now he wouldn't say this 
of course, ever now for almost 10 years. So that shift happened. Can you explain that? Within the scope of my book, one of the chapters is dedicated to this notion of the historical Russia. So I'm, I'm trying to answer a very basic question. When, this, when did this notion appear? Who used it? Uh, what does it even mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, does historical Russia have any borders? Uh, uh, I, I mean, yeah, because are there any territorial, territorial claims in it? Or they're not? Putin answered that question. Remember, he said to some boy, he said, Russia doesn't have any yeah. border. Yeah, I mean, but it's a joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Let's <don't> hope. <laughs> in, in, in 1990s, when you read uh, the Russian politicians uh, uh, from right to center to the left, and by left, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the communists uh, like Zuganov, which... Whom basically we shouldn't qualify as, as, as left, but rather as right wing conservative. But anyway, let's say he's left. Uh, <laughs> so there is this consensus regarding the current borders of Russia as being unjust. There is a feeling that Russia was somehow wronged by history because the borders of the Russian Socialist f- Federation, as the Bolsheviks drew those borders, were uh, very discriminative towards the Russians. And this concept of, of this idea of being wronged by history is supported by Sergei Baburin, which is a, a right-wing politician in 1990s, and he's still, still very right, active, uh, is being supported by former people from Gorbachev uh, uh, Politburo. Like, if you read Anatoly Chernyaev's memoirs, was like the main aide on foreign affairs to Gorbachev. Uh, I mean, he's a Russian nationalist. Uh, he basically says that we cannot allow Ukraine to go uh, away with Crimea because Crimea is our jewel. Uh, is 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 like a phantom. Is like a column of our national identity. What about Donbas? What about Odessa? Is there there are also like Russian territories. Uh, he's basically saying that if in if you read Anatoly Sapchak, uh, boss of Vladimir Putin in Saint Petersburg. He also says that there are, we have to do something about those Ukrainian nationalists. And actually, Crimea is ours. Uh, Gavrilo Popov, the major of, of, of Moscow, is saying also the same. And he's considered liberal. Also, if you take a look at Yeltsin, uh, you'll find plenty of quotes of Yeltsin in which he recognizes Ukraine as, as, as a state. But I think it was Kravchuk who said it, that uh, he, he never agreed on, on Ukraine as a separate entity from Russia. And I think he has he has a point in it, but uh, Yeltsin was much more smarter in a way that he he knew that there is no military solution to the current situation in the early 1990s when Russia is uh, in a very very poor state. There's a, it, there is actually economy is not functioning. There is a crisis. But when visiting the U.S., I think it was in 1990 or 1991, and speaking to George Bush Senior. He said basically that there are 11 million ethnic Russians living in Ukraine. And therefore, we treat it like a guarantee of pro-Russian orientation of the whole Ukraine. And actually, he, he was in, in, in this number, uh, he, was, uh, uh, he, he wasn't wrong. Because if you look at the census, the last census in the Soviet Union, there were like more or less 10 to 11 million people declaring themselves as Russian uh, in Ukraine living at that time. So actually, what I, thi- what I think why Putin and Yeltsin were recognizing the U- Ukraine as, as, as a state in, a, in, a, in their political rhetoric was that they really believed that those 11 million Russians and also some very strong ties, cultural ties and family ties as well, would be a political asset 
for which they will be able to influence Ukraine and change their course not to the in favor of Russia, but against the West. But the the choice of Ukrainian society in 2005, early in 2005 during the Orange Revolution, and then uh, in Maidan in 2013, showed him that I mean he has no control over those people. I mean th- that he cannot uh, play this whole situation as with Belarus, because if you compare those two situations, uh, I mean you compare Ukraine with Belarus. I think that the perception of, 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 of Moscow is very, very, very similar. Uh, there are no differences. The difference is only one. I mean, Ukrainian society said, uh, like in the, in the first word of the U- American constitution, we the people. I mean, we the people. We are the separate entity. We are Ukrainians. Go away. <laughs> really. I mean, it, 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 uh, so, so, so as to use very diplomatic words. And I think the second thing uh, about Putin and his evolution was that he, he really believed that he can corrupt the, the, the Ukrainian political elite. I mean, that the, the, there will be more Yanukovych's, uh, if I can, can, can say so. But perhaps he would find Yanuk, more Yanu, Yanukovych-oriented people in Ukraine. But, I mean, there is also society that I think he underestimated uh, because it was the Ukrainian society that made the choice. They, want, they, they don't accept corrupted state. They, they want a state which is democratic. They want state which is pro-Western, they want state which is integrated with the West, and uh, they just want to live better. I mean, they, they, when, when I think when people went out on Maidan in 2013, it was, it was like a civilizational choice. I mean, from seeing from, you, you know, from the Metapest perspective. So they were voting against the way uh, the, 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 the Russians, that, I mean, the, the Russian system uh, which is associated with corruption, uh, with level of democratic uh, values and laws, with uh, with militarization, uh, with oligarchization. They were they were voting in favor of, of of something very different, and I think that Putin didn't like it, and he 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 saw that he cannot use any more corruption because it's not working. He cannot use any other uh, uh, spe- special special techniques. Like from, from, he's a former KGB. He knows uh, how, how to do it. So he has to go for, for the military solution. And that's, that's what we are seeing. I mean, that, that's, that's my interpretation. But, you know, the issue of Ukrainian people, as you said, voting on those revolutions is that before, let's say 2013 Maidan, um, majority of Ukrainians, vast majority did not want to join NATO. Now, of course, it's flipped. Also, the EU question was was about 50-50% split, and there was no kind of certainty on that. And Putin changed it, essentially, uh, with his actions. So, of course, Ukrainian society tipped the scale in his evolution, but hasn't he also exacerbated that? Uh, And why does he continue down that path? Why doesn't he ever stop and think for a second that stuff that he's doing over the last 10 years is only making it worse. I mean, that's $1 million question, but uh, I think uh, he got really greedy and very confident that, that he can solve this issue militarily and that the Ukrainian society would be very, uh, would very easily swallow up the annexation of Crimea and, and, and then the Donbass war, the whole Novorossiya project, because he sincerely believed that there will be at least those 11 million Russians, as Yeltsin was telling Bush, could be in favor of joining uh, joining Russia. But 
I mean, Ukraine ha has existed at the in 2014. Uh, it was uh, how many years? 20, 23 years. I mean, there, there was new gen new generation already emerged and so was educated in the and they knew only Ukrainian state as something separate from Russia, even though they spoke Russian, I guess. And and I think it was it, it was his mistake. I think he miscalculated. I mean, maybe we'll learn from the documents what was the calculation there. But I actually agree that he really helped to make the choice uh, for the Ukrainians, even though, e even for those who, who were, who had some, uh, Russian leanings, let's say, or were, or were more, uh, prone to agree to join the, the Russian pub. I was really shocked, by the way, that when you take, take a look at Mariupol and take a look at polls conducted in Mariupol regarding the Eurasian Economic Union. It was, it was conducted like 2021 or 2020 or something. So more people, like six years, I don't remember the precise number, but the majority was in favor of joining the Eurasian Economic Union than the European Union. Look what, what Putin did to Mariupol and how this city looks like today sure. and, and where are those people living there. Uh, so from this point of view and from this rationale that we are presenting uh, and we are thinking and that you presented, Misha, Right now, it doesn't make really sense why 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 he did it. So perhaps that's the lesson we have to we have to draw all or all for us that there is different rationale. That, that that's something that I was also very very frequently encountering in the West when we were discussing the war. I mean, if Putin is going to attack or not. Right. So from the economical point of view, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, he cut all ties with the West in terms of economy. There are sanctions which are unprecedented in history. And uh, for what reason? I mean, he's now, Russia is now occupying like 70 or 20% of the Ukrainian territory, more or less, right? But he, he, Russia doesn't even control any major Ukrainian city. So they, they withdrew from, from Kherson. Uh, and the war is waging on. I think that in the long term, if you look at the Russian economy, it's going to be worse and worse. Even, even though it's working right now on, I mean, it proved to be resi more resilient than we have expected, right? But still, it's our rationale. It's, it's a Western rationale. It's, it's not Russian rationale. So perhaps we have to look uh, from a different angle and analyze from the different, uh, different angle. That's, that would be my response. But I would be really happy to see some documents from, from the Russian archives in which they are discussing the issue of attack uh, against Ukraine. There is a Russian rationale of um, of attacking your brothers, of, of fighting amongst the same people. You know, basically, let's say Russians killing Russians in Ukraine with Western weapons. All of that is out there, but Putin prefers not to see that. Or I mean, obviously, maybe he doesn't even have that information. But also, do you think that Putin and and Russian state do they think they they can somehow direct? part of Ukraine's anger towards Poland and use history as a weapon because there is a bad history. There is difficult issues with, with Poland on Ukrainian part. So can they somehow direct that channel Ukrainian energy against Poland? So I think there are two issues here. So first, when you take a look at Medvedev recently published the pieces about Poland when there was uh, on, on, on the occasion of the 4th of November, which is the day of national unity in Russia, which commemorates uh, 
finishing the occupation of the Kremlin by the Polish troops in, in the 1612. And when you take a look at this piece, there are two parts basically there. One is political one, and the second one is the historical one. The historical one is like a, a 70 or 80% of, of, of the whole article. But the point he's making there is that, and I think this article is showing that Kremlin is still looking at Poland as a country that still has some imperialist leanings towards Ukraine and is still willing to annex Lviv, to, to, to annex Tarnopol, to annex Ivano-Frankivsk, because it used to be Polish. And he would be very eager to see this approach from Poland. Why? Because I think uh, first it would weaken the position of Poland and blew up its credibility within the Western structures. Uh, second, it would be very easier for Russia to digest Ukraine if Poland annexed those territories. And, uh, and it's a paradox because for the, for the ages, I think the Russians were very scared of, of this Polish imperialism and Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth reaching uh, to, to Mozhaisk or, or even further, uh, like if you take a look at the map uh, from 15th century, there is basically from the borders of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth to Moscow, there's, there's 200 kilometers. So it's very, very close. So I think, uh, uh, but right now you don't have this imperialist thinking in Poland. I mean, what Poland proved after 24 of February is that it is supporting Ukraine as in the independent state. And, and, and that Poland is sending weapons and tanks. It's, it basically disarmed itself uh, for the sake of, 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 of Ukraine defending its, its independence. But with regard to history, I think the, the Volynian massacre is still and will be playing a great role. But I have two advices basically for policymakers. So first, be very careful to make it and, and, and make it only Polish-Ukrainian dispute. Don't include anyone from outside. Uh, and be very careful and aware when you see some comments coming from inside who is saying what is saying. And the second, perhaps uh, great to, to discuss it not on social media, but uh, during face-to-face meetings, because uh, you, you have this feeling of inflammation of relations when you enter social media, ping pong, and it's very, very, very bad. And I, I guess it, it could be used for Russia because it, and it will be used. I mean... This, the Volynian massacre will be, will be the issue for, for the next years. And my personal opinion is that is right now is not the right time for Ukraine to, for Poles and Ukrainians to discuss it because of the situation in Ukraine. And I don't expect Ukrainians to be ready to sit down at the table and, and discuss it. But on the other hand, I would expect from Warsaw to be very crystal clear how we treat the Volynian massacre, why it is so important to us, but without any, you know, expectations from the Ukrainian side, just for the sake that we want to this issue, we want this issue solved. So that's the one thing, the Volynian massacre. But on the other hand, we are talking like two or three days after the Institute of National Remembrance, Polish Institute of National Remembrance, closed the investigation with regard to the action Wisła. I don't know if you guys know what this is. It was in in 1947, the Polish communists conducted deportation of uh, Ukrainian citizens from eastern part of Poland to northern, northern, west, western part of Poland. And they were mostly Ukrainians. 140,000 people were deported. In this investigation, uh, the, the Institute of National Remembers claimed that we're closing this investigation because it wasn't a war crime. Uh, it wasn't an, an ethnic cleansing, sorry, an ethnic cleansing. It was just like a preventive action because there were also Ukrainian partisans operating on those territories. But from historical point of view, sorry for, for, for this, but it was, it, it's a bullshit. 
first there were like 1,500 Ukrainian partisans. It's not a big number. They could have solved the situation very differently. The second thing, all the documents or the primary sources are showing that the Polish communists wanted to denationalize Ukrainian, uh, 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 Polish citizens of Ukrainian origins. I mean, in one of the documents, in one of the first drafts, uh, the General uh, Stanislav Moser even wrote that uh, it's high time to solve the Ukrainian question. I mean, you get the they remove this they remove this part. I mean, this sentence from the from the uh, next projects of, of of the whole operation. But still, it shows the, the the intentions of the of the Polish communists. And and my point would be that that if if we expect to be sincere and uh, speak on like partners with Ukrainians, I mean uh, the Poles, we have to be also sincere with regard to our history. Uh, and uh, to say what was wrong, what was good, and, and how it uh, how it really worked. But my expectations regarding uh, Polish-Ukrainian historical dialogue are right now very, very low due to the war situation. And I, I'm uh, since the start of the war, I'm arguing publicly in Poland that we have to be very careful so that the past won't uh, become the great digger of the present. Like it's a quote from Nietzsche. I don't know if Nietzsche fits really here, but I mean, but I, but I, but I really like this quote, uh, and I think he was right in in, in, in some way, uh, depending on how you interpret his, his his saying. But I don't know. Maybe when this war finishes uh, with the Ukrainian victory, victory, I hope there will be a time to discuss those those issues, particularly the the the, the Volynian massacre and also other issues regarding the Second World War, but also earlier periods, which are also of great significance, I guess. But uh, going back, sorry, because I, I, I made, <laughs> made a long introduction. So we, we saw, we, we at the Miroshevsky Center, we conducted some public opinion polls in Ukraine uh, in 2022. And we saw that the sympathy uh, towards Poland is very, very high. I mean, it never has been so high. There are some issues right now coming up in the Polish-Ukrainian relations, like the question of transit of goods through the Polish-Ukrainian border. I think history will be playing some role, but I expect rather the issue of uh, EU enlargement and what happens next. Because Ukrainian is a great country with a big agricultural sector. Uh, it's also big in terms of uh, people, basically. It will be very, very... Uh, difficult and very challenging for the European Union to adjust all its policies to Ukraine. It also will be very difficult for Ukraine to adjust to all the regulations of the European Union. The expectations of, or on both sides are very, very high. I'm, I'm living in Brussels right now. I'm following it very, very closely. And on the Brussels side, I see that there is an expectation that after the war, Ukraine will be great democratic country. I mean, it's um, unrealistic. I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd. But on the other hand, I see on on, on Ukrainian side that uh, they're expecting to join the European Union within four or five years. Not gonna, not gonna happen, really. Not gonna happen. And uh, so as to, I, I think what we need to do is to lower the expectations on both sides so as to avoid uh, potential catastrophe in the European-Ukrainian relations and work on some perhaps gradual steps, how we can join and adjust European policy and also Ukrainian policy 
within this context, within this context of the of the EU enlargement. So I don't think that history will be, I mean, the, the, the first, uh, the, the, the most priority of the future relations of Poland and, and Ukraine, because what you basically see with regard to transit, with regard to agricultural goods, with the whole, this whole scandal with, with grain export going for Poland, it's a signal that uh, uh, when we will be negotiating the EU enlargement, it's going to be uh, it's going to be very difficult and very demanding for EU bureaucrats and the politicians and Ukrainian politicians to agree on policies on on subsidies also because it's all about money, of course, uh, as well. And that's 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 what I expect. All right. Well, Bartok, this has been an absolutely tremendous talk. Thank you yes. so very much. Thank it's you. been a real Thank pleasure. You. Thank you very much, guys. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. There's a lot of things to like think about after this. Like, no, that was great. And one more question. Yeah. Who's your audience? It's mainly academic? That is not. Okay. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> 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 <laughs>